Hello everybody, Father Sean O'Brien here with another episode of Father Sean's Podcast. I have truly enjoyed doing this commentary on Genesis here. This has been great. Uh, I get to hit on some of my favorite themes, especially in the first three chapters there, about kind of who the human being is. Uh, but then also just there's some just great stories in the midst of this. Great ironies, great characters, great great uh, stories of fall and redemption and of promise and of hope. Uh, I love this theme of the covenant that we talked about last time, and God is now kind of slowly rolling out the plan for his covenant. Uh, and this is a little bit at, uh, well, I guess I should say, Abram and Sarai, uh, Abram and Sarai don't really know exactly how to interpret this, and we hear a little bit more of that coming up here today as we approach chapters 16, 17, and, and I'm going to get into 18 a little bit as well. Uh, this is not leading up to the birth of their son. Uh, at least it's not fulfilling that yet. It's kind of getting the backstory of kind of how they made their own path, how they made their own path when it was uh, clear that God's path was not so immediate, and they, they worried a little bit. So anyways, before I get into that here, let's, uh, let's just kind of dive in. So with this promise that Abram, Abram and Sarai know that they will have a child and this child will be the, the heir of this coming kingdom that is, that is to come. He will be the heir of the promises of Abraham and he will be the father of a nation as well. But the problem is they don't have a child. They don't have a child. And this is a problem Sarai says, God has kept me from bearing children. So with this delay in bearing children, she comes to a conclusion. God has kept me from bearing children. And she comes up with her own alternative path. She decides that if she can't have her own child, she will have a child by adopting another child. This child will be the child of her husband, but it will not be her own child. So she decides to invite Abram to take her, her maid, Hagar, and she says that I may have children through her. And Abram, being a good husband, I say that very facetiously, <laughs> Abram heeded Sarai's request. So that is to say, he went and he was with Hagar. You know, this, this is a story of distrust. God has a plan for me, God has a plan for me, God has a plan for me. But I don't see it happening yet. But God has a plan for me. God has a plan for me. I still don't see it yet. And this has been 10 years, I believe. 10 years, it says in the text, that they have waited, but to no avail. And so after waiting and waiting and trusting and trusting, finally they're like, well, it's not going to work. We have to do something else. And they distrusted God's plan. They distrusted God's plan and they, they latched onto a new plan, their own plan. This was their own plan of pride. It was kind of this also a result of their fear. Oh, you know, we're not going to get God's promises. We're worried and we're afraid that we're going to miss out on that. So Abram visited Hagar and Hagar bore a child for him. This was normal in the ancient world. The ancient Syrians, they had a they have this text that says if there is no child in two years, then the wife will let her husband take her slave. And 
that's kind of what happened. There's another text that's really famous out there that I don't know. I say famous, but not very well known to me personally, and probably not to most of us. But this is kind of like they gave, or she gave, to Abraham a womb on legs. They didn't need a person. They don't call her by name. You go ahead and take my slave, my maid woman here. And in the narration, we hear of her name, but not from the lips of Sarai and not from the lips of Abram. They just treated her as a womb on legs, a human incubator. Today, we have a still very common practice of surrogacy. It's, it's going on across the world here. It happens in the United States. Uh, in different ways. I think a lot of times people probably hire someone in a third world country to bear their child for them. This is part of the... So this is happening with couples of different sexes, the husbands and wives, but it's also happening with same-sex couples. Obviously, the very nature of the relationship is infertile, and they still desire the fruit of fertility, even though that's not the essence of the relationship. And so they have hired people in different countries to have children for them. This is something that is happening today. We can also see a parallel with in vitro fertilization. We'd love to have children. We'd love to have children. We'd love to have children. Isn't this God's plan? But we're still waiting and waiting and waiting and probably praying and praying and praying. But finally, they say, enough waiting. We're just going to go to the quote-unquote fertility clinic, and we will create a child in the laboratory, and we will put them into the womb of the woman. Uh, not just one. Usually you do this with a handful and usually the, the standard expectation is that of those quote-unquote handful of embryos, some will die and some will come to full term. That is to say, there's a lot of, of human, what's the word I'm looking for, collateral damage. I hate to put it that way, but they're kind of expecting that these embryos will die because there's not a high high life expectancy or high fertility rate with in vitro fertilization is very low. It's gotten better over the years, but it's still very low. And this is a problem. This is a very big problem. And it comes, I think, usually, I don't want to make a broad categorizing claim or accusation, but I believe usually this comes from a distrust in God. God is not going to give us children. He's hiding from us something good, and we must grasp our own good. So, this is what happens. And because of this situation with Abram and Sarai and them kind of looking towards Hagar, even though that's a common thing in the ancient world, it's not God's plan. <clears throat> and we see that just very immediately. It just creates weird dynamics because Abram and Sarai just see it as, well, it's just kind of a walking womb. I'm going to get a child from her. But Hagar says, no. Mm-mm-mm. I am, I'm special. I am bearing my master's child. I'm something different. And she begins to look with contempt on her mistress. That's what the text says. She looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarah then blames Abram. And Abram, as a result, disowns Hagar. He says, go ahead, you know, treat her as you see fit. And Sarah did that. She treated her very poorly. He probably abused her in different ways, maybe verbally, maybe physically. And Hagar runs away with the child of Abraham, the child of what they think is the child of promise, though he's not. God's messenger then goes to Hagar. I mean, this is a crazy story. And addresses her firstly by name. It's the very first time that 
she is addressed by name. And it's very beautiful in a certain sense that she has been someone who's been cast out, but then God comes and speaks to her by name and says, Hagar, where are you coming from? Where are you going? I'm running away. And then the messenger says, well, go back and submit to this abusive treatment of your mistress. And then the messenger continues to speak and gives her a promise. I will make your descendants very numerous. You'll bear a child. Ishmael is his name, which means God has heard. Because we presume that Hagar's crying out, God, my God, why? What, what's going on here? Like, I thought you were going to care for me. And God says, your son will be, God has heard. He shall be a wild ass of a man. That is to say, he will be undomesticated. He will be unpleasant to be around. Then he kind of gets into a little bit of that detail, like just clear that no one's going to want to be around him, even though he will be this this great man, a man of a great nation, but a very unpleasant man nonetheless. Then Hagar says, You are the God who sees me. And then she kind of gives an exclamation after this. I have seen the one who sees me. Or another possible translation is, Have I remained alive after seeing him? The reason why there's a, such a different translation, because there's a word in there that they don't really know how to interpret. It's got kind of different roots there, and they just are not really sure. And so we can say that when there is an interpret, when there is a translation, there is generally an interpretation because they just mean two different things. The first one is, I have seen the one who sees me. This is a, a commentary on how intimate she is experiencing, uh, the, the intimacy she's experiencing with God. I see God and God sees me after the world, after my masters chose not to see me and to recognize me. The other interpretation is kind of the survival after divine contact that after seeing the God of, of greatness, of majesty, who usually, you know, the ancient world expects to die after having these divine encounters, well, this is what happens. Um, she survived. <laughs> and she's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Is it true? It is true. I can't believe it. Well, the story goes on. She went back and she had her son. Chapter 17, Hagar goes back, she has her child, and God appears to Abraham. <clears throat> Not Abraham yet, Abram. And he introduces this crazy scene by saying, I am the Almighty God. You walk before me and be perfect, or another word is blameless. So here there's a confession of the identity of God, and then there's a summon to morality. Walk before me. And be blameless. Do not sin. And then God goes on. Between, between you and me, I will establish a covenant. And I will multiply you exceedingly. So this is nothing new. God gives the covenant. Abram now prostrates himself. And God continues. And he just reiterates the covenant. But this time, he gives him a new name. Abraham. It really doesn't give a new meaning to the name Abram. Because both are coming from the root word father. Um, it's maybe a translation could be Abram means father is exalted and now it means father of a nation, but it's very, very similar. It's not too, too different. God again reiterates the covenant. I will make you exceedingly fertile. Nations and kings will come from you. Your descendants will be part of a covenant. 
another way that he describes this as an everlasting pact. Everlasting. This is kind of the new thing that's added here. It will be everlasting. And God again reiterates the promise of land. But again, he is calling upon Abraham to respond to this covenant. This is the very first time that Abraham is hearing that there is his side of this covenant. When there was this strange event happening with, with the animals kind of split apart that we talked about last time, and there's this this flaming cooking pot or whatever it is and a torch that are going through these animals, Abram had no role to play. He was just to be a recipient of the covenant. Now he's to be a recipient of the covenant and he's to have obligations in this covenant. Not just walk before me and be perfect, as we heard just a minute ago, but also he says, on your part, you must keep my covenant, which means you must observe the requirements of this covenant. And then he says, the obligations of this covenant is circumcision, which is a very intentional reality here. When Abraham trusted God, that God would provide for him, it was credited to Abram as righteousness. He was a righteous man because he trusted. But the instrument of his distrust, when Sarai proposed that he go and be with Hagar, I'm going to put it very bluntly here, the instrument of his act of distrust was his penis. And therefore, it is very fitting that now the obligation in this renewed covenant is circumcision. The word covenant is from the base word in Hebrew of cut. So when Abraham hears that you must keep my covenant, and this is the covenant circumcision, he could also be hearing very easily in the Hebrew language, keep the cutting, keep what has been cut, keep the circumcision, do not break the covenant. Who You must bring this circumcision to everyone who's in your, your kind of tribe there and all of your children, and you will bear a child, and I will bless him, and I will bless all of them, but they must keep the covenant, which the basic sign is circumcision. It was not part of the original covenant, and it's not like we have a new covenant here, but it's kind of just like God saying, okay, I see that there's distrust here. This is how you distrusted me, and this will be the sign of your act of trust. You will give that instrument of distrust to me. What you've distrusted with, you will now actively trust with that. And that's what happens. (laughs) It's kind of crazy, isn't it? And then Sarai gets a new name. She is now called Sarah. Sarah. Both of these names are just kind of different variations on on the word princess, actually. And God says, I will bless her. She'll bear a child and I will bless him. And then Abram, Abraham, this is very, very important here in this story of this upcoming son, which we don't hear about for another few chapters, but it's very important here. God doubles down. She will have a son. And the son will be named Isaac, which will be under well, which comes from the word laughter. And he says, As for Ishmael, I am heeding your request that I will bless him as well. Because Abram's like, He's my son. I don't want him to get lost. I don't want him to to be forgotten about. God says, I'm gonna care for him. I'm in fact gonna make him a nation. 
Twelve, he will be the father of twelve chieftains, but for him there will be no covenant. He will not be the heir of the covenant. This is the child between you and Sarah. Very providential. And then Abram laughs. He laughs. Think about this. He's 100 years old and she's 90 years old. And God is saying, look, you distrusted me. You you have to trust that I'm going to give your child to Sarah, not to Agar. And Abram laughs. And I believe that this is a laugh of just the, the profound irony of God, that God is still going to work out this miracle, and he doesn't know how, and he just kind of laughs at being like, oh my gosh, this is true. I do trust God now. I, I'm part of this covenant, and you will provide. Oh my gosh, and he just kind of laughs. So note this laughter of Abraham, because we're going to hear about this in the upcoming chapter here, which I'm going to get into right now. Now, in chapter 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham, and looking up, Abram saw three men. This is very, very interesting, because it says, the Lord appeared to Abram. It doesn't say how, it doesn't say it was a vision in the sky, but the Lord appeared to Abram, Abram looked up, and what he saw was not the Lord. He saw three men. Very interesting. He greeted them. And he bowed to the ground before them. Very significant. Very significant. These three men seem to be in some way a theophany, a revelation of God, an epiphany, an unveiling of who God is, the Lord. Abram bowed to the ground before him. He was very eager in hospitality. He said, don't leave, please. And he mentioned all these different things that they must do before they leave. And these include, he includes all these, to drink, to bathe, to rest, to refresh. And he tells, and he goes inside and he tells Sarah, quick, bake some bread, get the choicest steer, get the curds and the milk. He understands that these three guests are, are uniquely from God. And so they, they do stay. They stay for a little bit. And they tell him, I will return in a year. He says this with the singular voice. I, even though there's three men and we don't know which men are talking. I will return in a year. Sarah will have a son. Sarah's eavesdropping here. And this time she laughs. We don't know why she laughs. We kind of interpreted Abram's laugh as kind of this this profound appreciation of the irony of God. Like, wow, God is going to work this miracle. It's, it's incredible. I can't believe it. Who would have guessed? But for Sarah, it's different because we hear her internal dialogue. We hear what she says, that shall I really have a child at 99? And this laughter seems to be more of not a appreciation of the irony of God, but a laughter as thinking this is impossible. It's almost like a mocking. Is there and then God asks Abraham, you know, there are these three figures and Abraham are not with Sarah. Sarah's eavesdropping at a distance. But these three figures intuit what's going on. She know they know that Sarah's laughing. Is there anything too marvelous for the Lord to do? They say. And then again they double down on what they told Abram, that she will bear a son. She will bear a son. Uh, Just as a little comment on this scene, this scene is kind of famous. There's a a Greek 
icon writer. Icon are these images of, of holy scripture, of holy people. And they are icons into heaven. We kind of understand the theology that's behind these as these are depictions of scenes. But more than depictions, they're more like windows into heaven. Like there's these eternal scenes that happened in scripture and we have access to them through these icons. Or there's these holy saints that are depicted in these icons. And it's not like we just have an image of them, but it's a it's a mirror into into the reality that they are in heaven. And so there's this more this greater sense of of looking into heaven. It's kind of you're looking through a looking glass, if you will, and seeing through it into a deeper reality. These this is kind of the theology of icons in the Greek church, in the Eastern Church. And one of the authors of this, they're called authors because they write icons. They don't paint icons, they write icons. And the, they're not painters, they're authors. One of the authors is Andrei Rublev, I believe that's his name. And he depicted the Trinity. He wrote the Trinity. And this is very tricky because iconography does not depict realities that have not been revealed. We don't know what God looks like, partly because God doesn't look like anything. He is pure spirit. This is why in the, in the ancient world, it's still in the Muslim world, and it's still in the Jewish world, and it needs to be maintained to some degree in the Christian world, is that what God has not revealed himself to be, we cannot depict himself. We cannot depict him to be that. Because as quick as we put something before, we, as soon as we depict him as something, we are eliminating all the other realities that he is, and we are reducing him to our painting, to our concept, to our idea. And God cannot be reduced. As soon as we reduce the concept of God, we reduce God, which is a great offense to him. And again, this is the core reason why there is the prohibition, the Jewish prohibition of making images in the likeness of God, because God does not have a likeness. Now, I also say, Jesus became flesh. The Son of God became flesh, and we can, and we should depict him in images, because we, that's how he, because he himself depicted himself as a, as a walking image, as a reflection of the Son of God, but as a man. And this is what he did, and we can kind of glorify God in that. But we can't do that with the Father. We cannot do that with the Father. He's not revealed himself as a physical reality. We need to really stray away from that. Sometimes it is done with the Holy Spirit. And we do have the idea that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. He descended upon them on Pentecost with tongues of fire. And so that may be depicted in religious artwork, but not as another being. Jesus, yes, the Father, no, and the Holy Spirit with with these basic limits. So anyways, that's the background here. So there's a problem in depicting the Trinity. How the heck can you paint the Trinity? The reality is you can't. You can't do it. You can't do it because you can't depict them. It's not been revealed as a physical reality. And therefore, you can't paint a physical reality of the Trinity. But Andrei Rublev read this passage, and he said, Behold, God, or excuse me, Abram, saw these three figures as God. They three came before Abram, and Abram bowed before them on the ground. And he had this divine recognition that these are of God. 
And so Andre Rublev paints this scene with these three figures. Abram's not in the scene. There's three human figures there, guests at a table, eating. And they have their staff because it seems like they're travelers. But the title is The Holy Trinity. You can look this up on YouTube. You can look up more information. I think it's very profound, very interesting, very intriguing. I think as the scene continues to advance, which we'll get into next time, that interpretation of the scene as, as a revelation of the Trinity, it holds to some degree, but I think it also falls off because we're going to hear that uh, one is uniquely the Lord and the other two are messengers of the Lord. And there's a very, there's a very significant dimension of that. So I thank you for joining me today on hearing about this scene with Hagar, who's kind of known to be a, a oh, I don't know, someone who stands as a figure of, of especially women who have been cast out, who have been downtrodden, who have been ignored and have been beaten up in different ways, that God still cares for them, that God shares intimacy with them, that God calls them by name. God does not give up on his process. God does not give up on his plan. There are adjustments in the plan because of our distrust, but but he always gives us a new opportunity to trust in him, to trust in him. So, please read the text. Please read the text. You will miss out on so much if you do not. It is a sacramental reality, and you're going to absorb it better there than just hearing this from me. This helps you read this for sure, but this is not meant to substitute the Bible. This is a commentary on the Bible. Peace to you all. Say a prayer for me, please. I enjoy doing this. Uh, happy Pentecost to you. This is just after Pentecost Sunday, and uh, I look forward to joining you again. Next time it will be on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God bless you all. Bye.